This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity Church. Uh, it is good to be with you all. It's been a while since uh, I've had to do it this way. Um, I was hoping we would never have to be back uh, in an empty room, um, but here I am. Uh, and uh, it really is a pleasure to be able to gather around God's Word, uh, even virtually. I do, I do pray that you all are staying safe, uh, and we look forward uh, to uh, reuniting together as soon as we can. Um, we're continuing our sermon series in 1 Samuel. Uh, and I wanted to intro with, with kind of this experience that Margaret and I had with Ikea here in Puerto Rico. When Margaret and I first moved uh, to Puerto Rico, uh, we, we had a, an interesting experience with Ikea. You see, we had lived in Kansas City um, when Kansas City had opened their Ikea, and it was a huge event. Uh, people were pumped about it. It was an enormous building. It was one of those things where you would spend, uh, you know, hours walking through the showroom um, be dwarfed in like the three-story warehouse uh, to finish and just be exhausted. Uh, but also, it was unbelievably good news to a newly married couple uh, who had no money to be able to buy some furniture uh, that had some design elements that would probably not last more than a couple years. <laughs> Cheap furniture, easily accessible. There was an experience that came with Ikea, though. There's an experience of parking in the huge parking lot, walking in, getting lost, getting the things that you need, dreaming about the rooms. We moved to Puerto Rico in 2019, and we heard that there was an Ikea here. We moved with eight suitcases, and so we were planning on buying all of our furniture. Uh, and actually, we bought a lot of it in advance uh, through Ikea's online website, which uh, at the time uh, was, was not great at all. But we actually had a pretty good experience, all things considered. We did get our furniture. But the first time that we entered into the actual Ikea store, now, full, if you've been to the Ikea that is here now, it's, it's not the same building. Um, what it was in 2019 uh, was a small room, maybe a quarter of the size of our church room, if you know what that's like, um, maybe uh, a couple of the biggest rooms in your house. You could walk in the door and see the entire showroom. Now, my experience with this was that this Ikea was inauthentic. It was superficial. It had all the right branding and all the right colors, but it didn't have all the same products. You couldn't pick up stuff there. They didn't have the nice swivelly carts, you know, um, because there was nothing to buy there. You had to order it and come back another day. There was no food for sale. The Ikea experience was lacking. It was inauthentic. It was superficial. And my question for us today is, I, I want us to think about what superficial spirituality looks like, or what authentic spirituality looks like. Is authentic spirituality great acts of faith, casting out demons, prophesying, the best preachers and apologists? Are these the signs that an, a, your, the spirituality is authentic? Because I actually think that superficial spirituality is much more rampant. Spirituality was seemingly all the right branding, but when you walk in, the experience leaves a lot to be desired. There's no actual transformation and lacking a lot of excitement. We can all have a superficial spirituality. And Jesus has something to say about this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
The reality is, is that superficial Christianity, superficial spirituality is insidiously dangerous. Superficial Christianity is everywhere. Lukewarm water that is neither hot nor cold, we are content with inch-deep religion. We treat church, Bible reading, and prayer as if it's just a spiritual checkup that we need once a week, like visiting a a physician or a counselor. But faith, authentic spirituality, is supposed to be so much more. It's supposed to mark our lives, transform something about us, change us forever. Now, in Ikea, there was an easy way to differentiate between an authentic Ikea, there's quantifiable things, and the inauthentic Ikea. But with our spirituality, it's actually much harder to discern, and that's what we're going to explore today. We're going to look at the last actions of King Saul, and we're going to see that he reveals to us a superficial spirituality. From him, we're going to learn that there are two signs of superficial spirituality, and then there's one result of superficial spirituality. So we are going to be reading from God's Word now. Um, I can invite you to stand at home. I do think it is important to kind of uh, go through these motions as a family, uh, participate together, even if we're not quite watching all at the exact same time. Um, In spirit, we're recognizing that church is more than just ourselves. Um, And so I'd invite you to stand if you're able. Uh, We're going to be starting in 1 Samuel 28, verse 5, but I'm actually going to be jumping uh, to 1 Samuel 31, um, which is a pretty pretty big jump. Um, But it'll be there... uh, printed in the bulletins that are linked below in the service. 1 Samuel 28, starting in verse 5. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had, not, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. Skipping to 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, 
And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Amminadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So we're exploring this idea of what a superficial, what are the signs of superficial spirituality? Um, there's this song by the Chainsmokers and Coldplay from 2017 called Something Just Like This. And in it, the singer, uh, the narrator, is talking about love. And in some sense, the man, the, 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 the man narrating, um, is comparing himself to legends and myths of old, the kind of man that he thinks he should be for this woman. Uh, Achilles in his gold, Spider-Man's control, Batman with his fists. But the problem is he knows that he's clearly not on these lists. But then in the song, the, the girl, his partner, kind of responds, right? She says, where do you want to go? How much do you want to risk? I'm not looking for somebody with some superhuman gifts. I'm not looking for some superhero, some fairy tale bliss. I'm just looking for someone I can turn to, someone I can kiss. I want something just like this. Uh, someone writing about the song phrased it this way. He doesn't have to be super, superhuman or have special abilities or even sweep her off her feet into fairy tale bliss. Instead, she wants something that she can turn to and she can kiss. She wants someone who is reliable, emotionally present, and affectionate. What's shocking uh, about this song and what we learn from this is that oftentimes what we think uh, people want in love, right, is something superhuman, something supernatural. They want us uh, to be gods in some sense, and we want to be that for those people that we love. But actually what makes this song so beautiful is that uh, the woman is able to say that she wants something authentic. She just wants him for who he is. Not Spider-Man, not Batman, not Achilles, just him. Oftentimes, we mistake supernatural spirituality for authentic spirituality. One sign that we have a superficial spirituality one that has all the right labels, but in the inside does not have the same transformative experience, is that we are desperately searching for a supernatural spirituality. And here's what I mean. You see, right before our passage uh, that we just read, Saul had learned that the Philistines, these ancient enemies, had encamped to start a war against Israel. And it says in verse 5 that when Saul saw them in his heart, he trembled greatly. Verse 6 says that when Saul went to inquire of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Um, just for reference, Urim, we've talked about in another previous sermon, uh, it's, it's kind of like casting lots, a way to determine God's will by uh, rolling dice of sorts. Saul was looking for God's answer in supernatural things, demanding that God communicate with him through dreams, prophets, mediums, and necromancers as the story goes on, the spirit of the dead Samuel. Saul wanted a supernatural spirituality, and this desire for a supernatural spirituality betrayed the fact that he actually had a superficial spirituality. Do you know why? Because God had already given Saul his word. 
way back in chapter 10. God, through the prophet Samuel, said this to Saul at his anointing. He said, you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. God had promised to be with him. Saul didn't need to search dreams and prophets in his fear. He needed to go back to God's word and hear it proclaimed over him, again, I am with you. Saul was striving to hear a voice from God, but he refused to hear the words that God had already spoken. For Saul, God's words already spoken were too mundane, too outdated, too general to apply to his particular situation. Saul wanted dreams, Urim, prophets, dead spirits. I meet a lot of Christians who have heard and want to hear from God supernaturally. And sometimes we often think that dreams and visions must be a more authentic form of spirituality, and that's not how Scripture speaks. The most authentic form of communication from God and spirituality that we, that we can have is by listening to the words that God has already spoken, knowing Scripture, that we can go back to again and again and again and hear those promises, those assurances. Now, I, I don't want to deny anyone's experience of supernaturally hearing from God, if that's true for you. After all, um, that uh, happens in 1 Samuel. God uses these means, dreams and prophets um, in Urim, to confirm his will for David and for Saul. But I'd like to challenge you to accept that the Bible actually tells us that listening to God's word is the most natural, the most authentic, the most real. The spirituality that we should be striving for is a spirituality that is saturated by Scripture not by supernatural events. Do you feel that God's word is too mundane, too outdated, too ordinary, too general to apply to your particular situation? Do you want something great, superhuman, supernatural? God throughout scripture occasionally uses these means. But generally speaking, he's much more content with the still small voice. And I wonder if you guys remember the story of Elijah. You know, Elijah's about to start his ministry. He's going to be a prophet after the time of 1 Samuel. Um, and he's, he's kind of starting his ministry, uh, and, and there's this rush of wind, a super powerful wind, but this encounter with God doesn't happen in the wind. And then afterward, there falls this huge earthquake. It's breaking rocks and collapsing mountains, and God's not there either. And then afterwards, there's a huge fire that's spreading, consuming everything, and God's not in the fire either. Afterwards, God comes with a still, small voice. God communicates in ways that we can understand, but often in ways that feel mundane, outdated, too small. Superficial spirituality strives after the big, the flashy, the supernatural, but authentic Christian spirituality is satisfied in God's Word. Now, that's the first sign. Now, Saul, in some sense, will continue to seek superficial, supernatural spirituality by turning to necromancy. Now, just think about this for a second. Um, Saul's looking for God to answer his prayers, and he's looking to do so by doing the very things that God forbids. And from this particular encounter, we see a second sign of superficial spirituality, and that's that Saul fails to actually mortify sin. Now, if you were to read a few verses before where we started, you would actually read these lines that Saul had put out the mediums and necromancers from Israel. And actually, this superficial spirituality that he had was very moral. 
it was a good thing that he'd get rid of the mediums and the necromancers. But by the time we get to our story where he's consulting with the medium, we recognize that he had a superficial morality. It meant nothing because he wasn't actually putting away these occult practices and turning towards God, um, but he was just looking for any answer that he could find. Now, mortification is kind of an old theological word that means putting sin to death. The Bible seems to affirm that it is possible for us to feel sorry about our sin, to regret it, even to apologize for it, but to not actually take it too seriously, not actually try to root it out of our lives, not actually try to put it to death, to mortify it. We've seen this before with Saul. He seems to express remorse at his sins against David. Uh, he seeks the Lord's guidance at key junctures in his, in his reign. Saul even tries to do right by his own people. He rescues a town of Jabesh Gilead. But all of this seeming holiness was just for show. All this morality was meaningless because he didn't actually change from the inside out. He, actually, he did not actually mortify his sin. He had not actually gotten any holier. You know this... Uh, Chainsmokers and Coldplay song I referenced earlier uh, mentioned uh, how the most authentic lovers love the person for who they are. But in reality, we would say that the best love stories um, don't just love the person for who they are then, but through who they are throughout their entire lives, right? Because for any relationship or any marriage to be healthy, there must be growth, there must be change, there must be a continual dying to self and an embrace of the other person. And this can't ever stop. It can't stop with friendship, it can't stop um, with um, parental relationships, and it can't stop with marriages either. If it does, the beauty fades. The relationship rusts. Things become difficult. The most beautiful love stories are not the ones that end, they stayed the same and they lived happily ever after. The best love stories are that they grew closer and closer forever after. You know, Jeff, Pastor Jeff last week uh, mentioned the notebook, and, and the love story that's, that's so powerful there is that by the end of the movie, Noah continues to love Allie even as she's forgetting him in the nursing home with Alzheimer's. Even as she's changing, he's continuing to deny himself and embrace this person that he loves from the heart. Saul might feel remorse, might even apologize, but he never really denies himself and embraces God's law from the heart. Saul has a superficial spirituality, and we actually um, can see this in just his entire story arc. So way back at the beginning, if you'll remember this, um, Saul is in a very similar situation with the Philistines. Um, he's a new king. Uh, the Philistines are encroaching, um, and he's given explicit instructions to not make the sacrifice. He's supposed to wait for Samuel, um, but Samuel's kind of delaying, and so he decides to make the sacrifice anyway, directly disobey God, take matters into his own hands, and leads the people astray. And here he's doing the same thing. In trouble with the Philistines, he turns to a sin directly disobeying God. The things that he himself had tried to put out of Israel, he's learned nothing. He hasn't mortified his sin. He hasn't denied himself and embraced God and his law from the heart. What about you? Would you say that you're mortifying sin? Would your life show a steady denial and embracing of God and his law, or is your spirituality superficial? Now, some of you are hearing me say that if you struggle with a particular sin that you've had your entire Christian life, um, that you're disqualified from God's kingdom. And this is what I want you to he hear. Zero progress against your, skin, against your sin in this life 
is reason for concern. God promises victories. Not 100% victory, not perfection in this life, but says that we are able by the power of His Spirit to mortify our sin, to strive to root out those deep roots in our hearts and throw them aside and embrace God's law from the heart into pure holiness. If you're someone who runs to God asking to be relieved of your sins, that's humbly broken before Him, a humble and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. But superficial spirituality is the one who is content with their superficial morality. I think our superficial morality shows um, in the fact that we have, a, we have a socially acceptable morality instead of true holiness. Um, and here's what I mean. Uh, we, we decide to manage our sin instead of putting it to death. We manage our pride by allowing it to surface in socially acceptable ways. Being smug or creating straw men out of our opponents or those who, whose politics we don't like why would we ever represent our conversation partners with love and charity when they clearly aren't deserving of the same sort of respect that we are? We manage our pride. We don't put it to death. We manage our anger. We don't put it to death. Um, we put on a good face for our superiors of kindness and gentleness, but to our inferiors or to our family members or to those that we love most, we have no problems lashing out or in the silence of our own cars. We don't manage our anger or we manage our anger, we don't put it to death. We manage our lustful thoughts and imaginations. We may um, pat ourselves on the back for refraining to do the most horrific things that have come into our imagination, but we still participate in the socially acceptable uses of lust and imagination. We manage lust, we don't put it to death. We manage our lies. Lies are interesting because when someone lies to you, you start to like, categorize them as a liar. You're just like, they're a liar, they can't be trusted. Um, but everybody would say that they lie, and yet we don't ever characterize ourselves as liars. We're like, well, I'm a mostly honest person. I only lie here and here. We manage or excuse our lies instead of putting them to death. Superficial spirituality, as Saul teaches us, means that we will commit the same sins over and over and over again and show zero signs of sanctification. Authentic spirituality requires that we deny our socially acceptable morality and embrace God's law from the heart, that we embrace true holiness. So we've seen two signs of superficial spirituality, but what's the result of superficial spirituality? Like, doesn't trying count for something, even if it's superficial? Like, we at least tried. Can't God acknowledge that? Well, Saul visits this medium, the woman. Uh, she's afraid to exercise her trade uh, because she knows uh, that death is imminent. Saul, disguised, assures her that she is safe to do her work anyway. Now, a side note here, the Bible is strictly against the occult and their practices, divination and necromancy, uh, are not things tolerated in Scripture. But sometimes in our Western thinking, we assume that the Bible says that because these things aren't tolerated, um, that they're therefore shams and pure deception, like they're just not real. Uh, and maybe they are shams. After all, it seems that the woman is quite astonished to actually see a dead spirit coming up from the ground. Uh, maybe she was not used to her arts actually um, causing something real that she could see. Uh, maybe she was used to creating a fiction. But Scripture doesn't make the same assumptions that we do. And this passage is written as if to say the spirit of Samuel really did come and really did speak to Saul. Is this normative for our experience? I.e., should we expect to experience this in our own lives? No, of course not. 
But the Bible does not deny the spiritual world, its existence, or its power. You might say uh, it's just how the Bible describes sins of the leaders, sins of Saul or David, without endorsing them. So here, God seems to use the wicked intentions of it for his own purpose. And what was God's purpose? It was to tell Saul that his death was imminent. Saul came searching for the spirit of Samuel for answers. Will God deliver us from the Philistines? And Samuel tells Saul the same things that Samuel said when he was alive. God is your enemy because you denied him, lived for yourself, failed to be the leader he called you to be, and instead became a leader like the other nations. But Samuel doesn't just stop there with the information. He goes on and he says that, I'll be seeing you and your sons real soon. What that means is they're going to be dying soon. You and your sons will not survive this battle. The result of Saul's superficial spirituality is death, but not just any death, a hopeless death. Now, death is something that, barring Jesus' return, we will all experience. And of course, all death is sad. Death is not something that God created us to experience. Humanity, as God created it, was bound for a certain sort of dignity, a certain sort of primacy in God's creation. And death upends all that. It isn't normal. It's actually unnatural. But there's a particular hopelessness in death that comes when you're outside of Christianity. See, throughout 1 Samuel, we get the picture that Israel is deeply saddened by the failures of King Saul. Saul seems to do wicked things to David, but David won't take the opportunity to kill Saul, making us think that somewhere deep inside, David was deeply sad that Saul was not who he should have been. All of Israel is deeply sad that Saul is not who he should have been. This was their first king. And despite his foolishness, the authors of 1 Samuel and David himself and all of Israel can't help but be caught by the hopelessness in his death. The king of Israel, with his sons dead in front of him, falls on his own sword. You can hear it when you read the story. The author is not happy to report this. Again, we have to acknowledge that the Bible describes suicide here, but never authorizes or prescribes it. Even if Saul felt that he was facing a dire situation like torture and death in the, matter, in the hands of his enemies, taking matters into his own hands betrays a lack of trust in God, especially a God who said that he would deliver him. Saul had a desire for the path of least resistance. His superficial spirituality comes to, fruit, to bear fruit in a hopeless death. Saul's death and its circumstances broke David and Israel's heart. A light of superficiality led to a death of profound sadness with little hope. And although the end of a superficial spirituality is death, the end of a true, authentic Christian spirituality is life. I don't know if you guys um, have followed the tragic story of Eliza Fletcher's horrific kidnapping and murder in Memphis. She was a Christian, attended a Presbyterian church in Memphis, and at her funeral, um, Pastor George Robertson uh, preached from the story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and it caught my attention in the way that he, he described it. Um, just to remind you of the story here, uh, Lazarus had died, and the, and the sisters, Mary and Martha, are distraught, and Jesus arrives onto the scene, sees their weeping, and he weeps too. But Jesus doesn't weep as one without hope, deeply saddened by death. He is the resurrection and the life. He walks over to the tomb and he calls out to Lazarus and Lazarus comes out alive. Resurrection hope marks the Christian life. Now sometimes we 
hear this and we might think to ourselves uh, that these are the kinds of things that we should experience if we have a true and authentic faith, that we should be seeing resurrection here and now. Um, Jesus had an authentic faith, the most authentic faith. And he did supernatural things. And you might be hearing these things and be going, now wait a second, um, if Jesus was doing supernatural things with a, an, an authentic faith, aren't we supposed to expect supernatural things? Um, and you told us earlier in your sermon, Zach, that we should uh, expect the mundane God's, God's word. Now Jesus, had a super, uh, Jesus did not have a superficial spirituality. He had an authentic faith. But I'd like us to look at it from a different angle versus the, the uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus story. Do you remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan? Satan asked Jesus to turn loaves into bread. And Jesus had been without food for 40 days. And although Jesus could have done it, worked this supernatural miracle, he'll multiply loaves and fishes later, right? He says this. He says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the Father. These words come from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Jesus here doesn't look for a supernatural spirituality in the midst of his temptation, but depends upon the seemingly mundane, ordinary, seemingly generic words of God from Deuteronomy. And they sustain him. Jesus has an authentic faith, not a superficial faith. The next temptation of Jesus is uh, Satan telling him to throw himself off a high point in a cliff because God said that he'd send his angels to protect him. But Jesus denies himself and says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus doesn't force God to prove himself to Jesus because this would be sin. Now, Jesus didn't have to mortify his sin like we do um, because he never sinned. But in this temptation, he refused to embrace sin and instead embraced God and his law from the heart. Satan's final temptation is to tempt Jesus with a rule of the earth without suffering. You see, Jesus is the king. He came to be the king, king over the whole, all of creation and the whole earth. But God's plan for him to become king involved a tremendous amount of suffering. In fact, it involved torture and death. A king tortured and killed for his constituents. Satan offered him an easy way out. He said, see, I can give you control of all of this if you just bow down and you worship me. But Jesus wouldn't take the easy way out or the path of least resistance. He would not embrace a hopeless death, but would embrace death hoping in life. And on the third day, that hope would come true being vindicated by the Father. Jesus, our good and truly spiritual King, would be the first fruit of the resurrection. Christian life ends with hope even as it goes towards death because Christian life is rooted in the life of our Savior, the truly, authentically spiritual one. So in Matthew 7, when we hear those words, Depart from me, I never knew you. And a part of our heart twinges because we know that we have a superficial spirituality. The good news of Christianity is not just that we've received instructions on how to have a better spirituality. The good news of Christianity is that the only one with an authentic spirituality gave it to you and to me. By faith in what he did, we are given the right to become children of the living God. It isn't our spirituality, but our dependence upon Jesus and his work as our only hope. The good news of Christianity is that Jesus doesn't leave us in the tomb like Lazarus in our superficial spirituality, but brings us into something deeper and truer. 
Now, normally at this time, we would come and we would gather around a table uh, and we would share a meal together um, of bread and wine, remembering Jesus' broken body and his spilled blood, this redemption price purchased for us. But we can't do that today. So I'm going to pray for us in a second, and then we're going to have a moment of reflection on our sermon. Um, And the idea here is, is that you're taking these truths of Scripture that we've just seen in 1 Samuel and praying and asking God to show you where the superficiality of your spirituality exists and asking Him to turn your heart, to embrace His law from the heart, to embrace Jesus from the heart, to cast all of your concerns upon Him who will call into the grave and say, come out, children of the living God. Please pray with me. King Jesus, we ask that you would give us authentic spirituality, that you would allow us to rest in God's word by the power of your spirit, that by the power of your spirit, we would be able to root out sin and embrace your law from the heart, and that by the power of your spirit, we might hope in your work alone all of our days. Amen.